Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. My name is Nadeg Seferian, and I am a PhD student at Virginia Tech's School of Public and International Affairs. Today, I have the honor of having a conversation with Dr. Levon Abdoyan. Dr. Abdoyan holds a PhD from Columbia University in ancient history and Armenian history and civilization. He has had a long and illustrious career at the Library of Congress. In 2015, Dr. Abdoyan was awarded with the Mofses Khodernazi Medal, the highest cultural award of the Republic of Armenia, bestowed by President, then President Serge Sarkisyan. And last year, Dr. Abdoyan was the inaugural recipient of the Society for Armenian Studies Lifetime Achievement Award. Dr. Avoyan, thank you so much for giving us a part of your day. I hope we will have a fruitful conversation. Thank you, Narek, and thank you for inviting me to do this, you and the Society of Armenian Studies. Our pleasure. I'd like to begin by just asking who Levon Avdoyan is. It's always complicated to ask Armenians, where are you from? But let's, let's begin with that. Where does Dr. Avdoyan's story begin? Well, it depends on the day who I am, but uh, actually I'm a second generation Armenian American. Uh, my background is my maternal side comes from Kharpet, uh, from the villages of Husinig and Kesedek. And my paternal side is actually from Bitlis. I was born in Providence, Rhode Island uh, in 1946. And it was a very thriving center of, of Armenian, of the Armenian community, and very close, obviously, to the Massachusetts communities, uh, which began the Armenian experience, I might say. But at the age of five, I had the misfortune, I think, of being wrested from Providence and moved by my father uh, and mother down to Orlando, Florida, uh, where we went from this huge enclave of the Armenian community to uh, pre-Disney Orlando, <laughs> uh, which was about 100,000 residents. Uh, and I think the estimate was maybe 100 Armenian families. So I went from this cocoon until the, to the wilderness. And I actually think that de defined me as an Armenian, me and my sister, uh, Lynn. Uh, it's very interesting to, to point out also, I think, I always say that uh, I belong to no political parties among the Armenians because my mother's side were, were Rangava, my father's side were Dashna. And so, you know, I, I heard this play out on all sides. My sister and I decided we're Armenian and that, 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 that's it. Must have been easier to do that in Orlando. It was in Orlando. There was no church. Um, we would have an itinerant Armenian priest come down once a year and we would uh, have a service in an area church and then have a calf. But um, it defined me because my sister and I always were interested in our backgrounds. Uh, we always received what we called a care package from my maternal grandmother in Providence, full of sujuk and bastel and you know, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, my friends eventually came to note when, we, when they saw the foods we brought to school, uh, grandma must have sent a package. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we had fun with it. Uh, 
she used to make bastel, which of course now are known as fruit roll-ups out of Concord grapes. And they were so purple that they looked black. And we would take them to school and we'd be tearing them. And of course, everyone would be looking at us. And we had fun with it. We would say, well, you know, when the Armenians first came here, um, they were poor, they didn't have much. And they didn't waste anything. So when tire inner tubes blew, we would mm -hmm. soak them in grape juice just so we wouldn't waste it. And then we would eat it. So I would offer it to my friends. And they, <laughs> they would do it back. But then we would tell them what, what it was. And they soon knew from food to music, etc., about Armenia. But it was not easy back then. We're talking about the 1950s in the early 1960s. And my questions were answered, obviously, from my, my paternal grandfather. Uh, he gave us the English translation of Jacques de Morgan's History of Armenia, which was the only history we had. We had the Armenian National Committee's publication on the Lausanne Treaty. Uh, that's about it, along with encyclopedias, so that when I decided in 1964 to write my senior thesis for high school on Armenia. It was that in encyclopedias. And I realized I really did not know that much about Armenia. It gave me an A, but it was, <laughs> that, was about, that was about it. Uh, I went off to a small Southern college called the University of the South at Swanee, Tennessee. It was an Episcopalian college. We had gone to an Episcopal church. Uh, and it was a godsend to me. My family, I no longer had an immediate family other than my sister. And it, it was another cocoon. But it was 800 students on top of a mountain, 10,000 acres on top of a mountain. Beautiful and very erudite. Uh, the professors knew exactly who I was. But it was in the South. And to be an Armenian who had a, a strange name and was slightly darker than they are, and the nose certainly qualified me to uh, be Armenian. I must say among certain of the people, there were, there were uh, problems, but among most, it was an extremely positive experience and gave me the education enough so that between the junior and senior year and one of my, what I call my serendipity moments, I was working for my mother's first cousins in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Uh, and I happened to mention that I would like to learn Armenian. My sister and I had spoken fluent Armenian in Providence. Within a year of moving to Orlando, we refused to speak and we had lost facility by the, by the time I was in college. So my cousin Marilyn Boyajan said that she had heard that there was a woman teaching Armenian at Columbia University. And she got her name, Nina Garsoyan. And I, made, I called Nina, Professor Garsoyan, and I made an appointment. And I, I will never forget my first look at this marvelous woman and certainly one of the most important people in Armenian academic life in the 20th century in America. She's sitting behind her massive wooden desk in Kent Hall, window behind her, and keenly asked me, about myself. And I said, well, I, do you know of any books where I could teach myself Armenian? 
And she said, well, tell me what you're interested in. And I said, well, I love history and I intend to apply to the University of Virginia uh, to, uh, graduate school to get a doctorate in ancient history. And one sentence changed my life. Mm-hmm. Why don't you come study with us? I said, hmm, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I applied and I received a five-year faculty fellowship, a, a full ride to Columbia to get a doctorate in ancient history with a minor in Armenian history and civilization. And I must tell you what I found there was an academic home because I was, I studied ancient history under Morton Smith, certainly one of the great minds of antiquity in the department of history. And Nina also was teaching Byzantine in the department of history. The Armenian history and civilization was taught in the Middle Eastern languages and cultures section. And so I, I had the history faculty that still had Ronald Syme visiting and Elias Bickerman visiting, and this great collection of Middle East scholars in the Middle East uh, languages and cultures from Halashi Kun to Kathleen Burrell to uh, George Meyer, Miles to uh, uh, all sorts of names that, you know, uh, Moshe Held, and they all actually work together and talk together. Now, so not to, I, please not go to, ahead. Not to digress too much, no, but please, it please. occurred to me, this must have been quite a dynamic time to be a student, late 60s, early 70s, no? Well, especially since both my first two springs at Columbia ended abruptly with student demonstrations and riots. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I was very much against the war, so I was sympathetic uh, to the protesters, but I must admit the arrogance of some of the protesters also shone through when I saw them take over um, the buildings um, and saw some of the professors fighting against it because they were fighting for their students. But yes, it was a very, the entire age was an exciting time because it was the growth of freedom movements, whether it's African-American or LGBT or women's rights, uh, tied inextricably with um, the demonstrations and the protests against the war in Vietnam. So it was a very interesting time, which carried forward, interestingly, um, in 1972, um, I was given an IRAX, International Research and Exchanges, board junior fellowship to do dissertation research in Yerevan at the Matanagaran. I believe I was the first one to have an entire year junior fellowship. Previously, Ron Suni, another uh, student of Nina's, had gone for a few months. And Nina herself had been a senior fellow in Yerevan, I believe, in 1970. So she prepared the way. Um, So I was there from 1972 to 1973, which gave me a different slant, obviously. Uh, and at that time, it was, at the Matanaviran, it was such a community of scholars. You had Levan Khachikyan, Pawe Muradian, Papenchukasazian, Anasian, all of these names that I had been reading, studying and helping. Uh, many were afraid to actually associate with fellows. Mm-hmm. They were perfectly friendly. Levon Khachikian would come to me 
would you be interested in fragments of your history? And I said, well, of course I would be. Others would say, do not meet Ashot Abrahamian, who was the head of the academy at that time, because you're working on the work that he worked on, and he wouldn't mm -hmm. like it. <laughs> Except when I finally, toward the end of the year, made an appointment to meet him, he was charming, delightful, regretted that I had not consulted him before, opened up the duplicate fund of the academy and said, choose any books you want and we'll send them. And I got hundreds of free books sent to me. Um, so that was another reason of cooperation. Uh, after that, I went on uh, the, the next year, right after Armenia, I became the Gennadius Fellow at the American School of Classical Studies at um, uh, in Athens, Greece. Mm -hmm. I always joke I went from one totalitarian state to another because it was still under the kernels. It was the junta, yeah. And that was the year <laughs> the student riot started. Oh, gosh. Through. <laughs> and then I came back to Columbia for a year and then got a Dumbart Noakes uh, junior fellowship. Uh, and that's when Watergate hit, I am presuming? Yes. <laughs> Yes, well, that was 1976 that I came down to Washington. At the end of that, I decided because the job market was bad and I was having some doubts about the dissertation, I was ABD, that I would start a career at the Library of Congress. And I must tell you that it's one of the luckiest decisions I have ever made. I adore academia. I adore scholarship. But I think I found my metier in being a librarian, which finally happened in 1982. To, to speed this along, 82 when I uh, applied for and became the library's uh, specialist in ancient history, classics, Byzantine, and medieval studies, and the main reading room of the Library of Congress. And in 1992, after a generous grant from Mrs. Marjorie Dady into the library, uh, I applied for and became the first Armenian area specialist, Armenian and Georgian area specialist in the Middle East, uh, Near East section of the African and Middle Eastern division, where I stayed till I retired last year. That in a nutshell is me. <laughs> That's quite a nutshell. And I'm sure there's other details that we would like to hear more about along the way. I know, I mean, this is a difficult one, but I can myself think of a couple of your highlights from your time in the Library of Congress, but, but let's, let, let's hear what your big takeaways are after what, 40 years, you know? 40, almost 42 years, yes. Um, I think, oh, there's so much. Yeah. The joy of being a reference specialist is that rather than help a few students, I, I, I hope I feel as though I help many people, Armenian, non-Armenian, etc., get the research materials that they needed. The worst times were when I was never able to connect a researcher with what he or she needed. The second thing that really means the most to me is building collections. I, I, I built the classics collection, which was all already huge uh, for about 10 years. But with the Armenian um, and with the help of some acquisitions people and the overseas offices, etc., 
uh, I took a collection of about 7,000 items. And when I left, we estimate it's about 47,000 items. Uh, I hope I was able to connect people with those. Um, thanks to Mrs. Dadian's grant, I started the Vartanon's Day Armenian Lecture Series. I wanted to ask you about that. Which I believe when I left was the longest running continuous lecture series at the Library of Congress. Uh, some wonderful people, academics, politicians, and we finished, the 22nd was my last, uh, a conference, a one-day conference on new topics in Armenian history and culture, uh, 11 superb speakers. I would have had more had we been able to do two or three days, but it was my raison d'etre there was to show that Armenian history and culture was more than any one, two, or even three events, that it was a history that spanned at least two and a half millennia, and that its contributions were great and its history was worthy of, of study. And I, I hope that uh, we accomplished that. We also had conferences that are ancillaries. With the Armenian Assembly, for instance, in 2000, we had a conference on the American response to the Armenian Genocide which was quite something. Um, people tend to forget that. And that was, gave me the opportunity to do the first of two exhibits that I curated at the library in Armenia. The first one was at that conference. It was supposed to stay up for one day, but Dr. Billington, the, then the librarian of Congress, decided he wanted it up for 30 days, and it stayed in this very, very public foyer in the Madison building. It also gave me the opportunity to display something that I had discovered, and I'm, all, I'm, I'm bemused constantly that it took an ancient historian to discover it, because when I knew I was going to do this display, I went to the manuscript division, which is for American documents. I knew that we had the Henry Morgenthau papers, for instance, mm -hmm. and I asked for his correspondence from April through June 1915. Now, how hard could that be? <laughs> so I am looking through this thin folder, and here we have his first cipher telegram that he sent to the State Department about what was happening. And then I happened upon this cardstock. And I said, well, this is nothing. And then I said, wait a minute. And it said, Sublime Port. <laughs> and I noticed on the bottom, scrawled, Talat. And I said, well, I better read this. Oh, and wow. in elegant French, here is Talat writing to Cher Ambassador et Madame Morgenthau, accepting a dinner invitation with them for that very evening. And that very evening was April 24th, 1915. And so literally my hand started shaking when I saw this. And as far as I know, no one has ever published this, although it was known that he, he was having this. So it did two things it demonstrated to me that people still weren't using our facilities the way they should be. Um, but the marvelous serendipity of doing research at the Library of Congress, you never know what you are going to find. When I left, there were 165 million items with you know, the largest library in the world. And I have to think that there's something for all of our scholars there. So, and the last thing that I would say I think is my proudest moment at the library 
was the exhibit that I curated in 19, uh, in 2012 for the 500th anniversary of the first printed um, book, um, the Rabata Girk uh, by Hagop Melvahar. And also that year was the year that Yerevan was the UNESCO book capital of the world. Uh, we did an exhibit of items from our own collections. The one thing is we could not borrow. It was from everything. And by that time we, we had enough. And the exhibit up was up for about five months and it brought in about a quarter of a million people. So I, I delighted Nutig in walking through the exhibit each day to see who was looking at it and what they were looking at. And it was, it was fairly fulfilling. So if you ask me in a nutshell, those are the things I really liked. Well, I'm happy to note that I was among those quarter of a million people. I had the good fortune of visiting that exhibit. And yes, it really was um, very neat and very, um, you know, I, I often have trouble uh, paying attention in museums and exhibits. I often feel overwhelmed, but I really loved that one. It was, oh, it's been eight years already, but I still remember yes. it vividly. Well, it was designed if you remember, it was called um, To Know Wisdom and Instruction, which mm -hmm. is the translation of the first words purportedly translated into Armenian after the uh, alphabet was invented. It was the second verse of the first chapter of Proverbs. And it was uh, the literary culture at the, uh, the Armenian literary identity at the Library of Congress. So it was very much involved with the literature and you were talking about identity, Armenianness, uh, and how they were inextricable after the invention of, of the alphabet. But it also included music. We had a listening station so you could hear um, uh, Ampitakits from Anush, mm -hmm. or you could hear Sup Sup from the Barak, and people were mm -hmm. listening. It had maps, I remember. And what pleased me also was that Dr. Billington saw it and liked it so much, he directed that all future exhibits be like that exhibit. Wow. <laughs> so that was a sign, you know, that we had arrived. <laughs> well, as they say, may your, may your efforts bear fruit. Uh, let's talk about identity, Dr. Avdoyan. Uh, I, I had a couple of just very broad questions about your take on Armenian identity as such, but your, your experience as an Armenian-American. It's, you know, I have a very broad definition of Armenianness. I only semi-jokingly have said my definition of an Armenian is anyone who says he is, because I can't think of a reason you would claim to be if you were not. I don't like tests for identity. I don't like this, well, you're half Armenian, or you're a quarter Armenian, or you, you can't speak, or you, you don't speak that well, or, you know, I usually say to people like that, well, of course, the purest Armenian is Grapa. Do you know it? So <laughs> if I do, I can say that. Uh, these are all ridiculous tests. Obviously, you're not going to deny anyone born in the Republic is in an Armenian. So we're talking about Armenian identity in the diaspora. First off, and I've, uh, in one of my articles I've written about this, the diaspora. 
there is no the diaspora. There are a variety of diasporas. And I guarantee you each diasporan home has a different definition about what it means to be Armenian. Uh, I mean, how do you make your chema? How do you make your domal? How do you dance this? Uh, I remember one person, one American saying to me, you know, I was invited to an Armenian wedding in California and they said, you are now going to see a real Armenian wedding. And these were Armenians from Lebanon. Mm. And he said, Lebanon, that was an Arab wedding. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the definitions of what it means to be an Armenian are many and varied. And identity is an extremely, an extremely complicated thing. I often uh, describe an identity as an onion. You start out with things like religion. You start out with things like being Armenian or language, etc. And you always get to that center of the onion, and it's always yourself. Mm-hmm. If your primary identity is, for, for instance, religious, then how come people have changed their religions? Mm-hmm. That's just one question, you know. Um, so... Actually, to me, if you feel you're Armenian, I'm not going to argue with you. You know, it, it is what it is. And really, I don't think any one person has the right to define who is or who is not Armenian. Um, and your experiences? How so? Well, as, as an Armenian? As an Armenian and as an Armenian-American. Uh, what what dynamics did you see? You had a pretty unique experience that way. You touched upon it I don't earlier. know if it was unique. I certainly have met several echelons, if you want to say, uh, different mm-hmm. ways. I mean, I've been Armenian in Providence. I've been Armenian in Florida. I've been Armenian in Tennessee. I've been Armenian in Yerevan. I've been Armenian in Moscow back then, which was, you know, Vyrani, mm-hmm. you know. I've been Armenian for a year in Greece, so I've seen the variety of experiences. Let's take language. As I said, I went to Colombia to learn Armenian. In 1968, and Nina, with great forethought, when you learned Armenian, it was Eastern Armenian, because Mm -hmm. at that time and for many decades, Arguably, the greatest amount of scholarly literature was coming out of the Republic. I mean, you had you had Basmaveb and you had Hantes Amsurya in Europe, but you had Papmabanasirakan Hantes, Lurtes, you know, and all sorts of volumes coming out there. I'll never forget the first time I wrote Armenian for my grandmother. She started crying. To her, Armenian was Armenian, even though she was from Kisanik. We now have all of this. Well, that's Eastern Armenian. Oh, that's that's Western Armenian, as though they're different. To me, all three Armenians are Armenian, and they're all of equal importance. But but that's that's one way people judge judge the identity. I do find it very strange that those who are touting Western Armenian now 
include Rafi among them, which, who of course is an author in Eastern Armenia. Anything we can do to preserve all three of those Armenians is to be praised. Um, being Armenian in academic circles, the work of people like Nina Garsoyan and Robert Thompson and Avadi Sanjan and Richard Hovanesian and uh, Robert Hewson, to remove the study of Armenian from the ghetto, so to speak. In other words, mm -hmm. this, is, this is an ethnic study into the mainstream of American academic life cannot be overstressed. And it's one reason that I don't like to use the word Armenian studies because that sets us apart from these disciplines rather than an integral part of them. Mm -hmm. um, I understand why people use Armenian studies. Um, I don't. If I do, it's because I've heard it too often and I'm repeating it. Uh, Having said that, it was very interesting being an Arminist and an ancient historian in Yerevan, in, in uh, Athens, and in Washington, because they didn't know where to put you. Hmm. <laughs> they didn't know where to put you. I mean, when I was at the American School of Classical Studies, as an ancient historian, even though I had the Byzantine Fellowship, I was the Arminist. When I was at Dumbart Nooks, uh, uh, the Center for Byzantine Studies, I was the ancient historian. You know, no one knew where to fit us. Where do we fit? And I'm willing to bet you the modernists have that same problem. I think so. Uh, I don't have, um, you know, I can't speak with much authority, but I feel like it's a field that lends itself to multi and interdisciplinarity. But you are in a unique position to comment on all that you have seen in that field for a number of decades. You've seen it grow. You, you, you've interacted with that first generation. So uh, how about in closing, uh, just some thoughts on, on, on those shifts and those dynamics that you've witnessed and maybe even where you see the field going? Well, first off, you are interviewing me because I'm now a senior <laughs> member of this committee. <laughs> How that happened, I have no idea other than chronology, I guess. Um, that first generation was inventing what was needed. Now, let me speak just in terms of ancient and medieval, because, you know, uh, people who know me know that I would help you at the library in any period, but I would never speak as an authority in those periods I was not trained in. I do wish modern, more modern historians would accord me the same, um, the same in terms of ancient history, um, but that's another matter. I, please, if I forget to address that, pull me back to ancient history at the end. So when you deal with people like um, Nina Garsoyan and Robert Thompson and um, and Hewson and all the others of the first generation after Cyril Tumanov. Um, they were working with their students, such as Dick Ronkyumjian, Jack Fartudian, you know, Kriko Maksudian. Let's not forget their students too. There were many, many other students uh, of that prior, Ron Suni, well, those modernists, to get the texts out there. 
to get, get you know, to update the Langlois collection, you know, the old French translation, so that Armenian sources could be used in the disciplines they were inserting Armenian history and culture. And I think they did a marvelous job. I mean, Robert's translations um, were literary translations, but they were very, very good, uh, with very good critical apparatus. If you want to know what challenges they faced, his Moses, uh, translation of Moses Koronazi was condemned because called him a faker, you know, mm -hmm. uh, my own translation of the Patmuchin Tarano uh, earned me no uh, supporters um, because of that. What we were taught was you don't apologize for the sources. And indeed, you don't apologize for Armenian history. There is nothing to apologize for in that history. It is a rich and long history. And indeed, you don't wed yourself to anything in that history. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with my translation of the history of Taron, but um, that in itself was how I came about it, was a history we don't have time for. But in essence, this supposed fourth century through seventh century source, I proved to many people's um, belief, was a 10th century monastic forgery with additions added on up to the 12th and 12th century. I believe that to be true but I was raised in the following manner. That history was about Glockalank, the history of St. John uh, the Karapet in Mouche. If some exploration were finally permitted in Mouche and they found graves from an earlier period and they found physical proof that I was wrong, that this was a new 10th century monastery, I would say, oh, God, I was wrong, but I would admit it. There is nothing, ego does not belong in historical studies. It is organic. History grows as new. And that first generation didn't have a tool that we now have. And you said, yes. where are we going? I'm talking about remote DNA studies, yeah. which has already greatly contributed to our knowledge. Now, we're not at the point where we can accurately interpret everything. But it has really been, for someone of my age who has difficulty in understanding the science behind it, it has been eye-opening and it has been meaningful. Now, I said to pull me back to ancient history. It seems the difference between that generation where you had modernists, ancient historians, medievalists, it seems that we have leveled off into early modern to modern being the most important disciplines in Armenian history and culture in the United States. I don't think there is any place, if you came to me, Nadek, and you said, I want a doctorate in ancient Armenian history, I don't think there's any place I could send you in the United States any longer. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying there isn't anyone who can't read the history and teach the history of secondary literature. But for instance, there is no trained ancient historian in the academy left. And I think that is a glaring omission. And most of the medievalists are actually middle to late medievalists. I hope that that's a course change. 
But may I talk about something about what's happening as a result of the virus? Of course. I mean, this is typical. I mean, you know, I'm nothing if not idiosyncratic. Um, <laughs> I personally believe that the humanities have declined already in the United States and, and to some extent worldwide. There was already an impetus against it. Uh, I have my own feelings of why that is happening. Some of it's political, some of it's economic. Some of it is that I don't think those in the academy have actually reached out enough on a popular level, but that's another matter that I intend to write about. I do believe that the post-COVID-19 academic world is going to be markedly different. The universities and colleges are already talking about cuts in this program or cuts in that program. The MAP program, for instance, at University of Texas in Austin is being cut. All sorts of programs are being cut, which means, of course, fewer jobs for the doctorates we're producing. I hope a young scholar could use my career at the Library of Congress to show that there are alternative careers that will allow them to keep their interests alive and well. I do know the first few years as a librarian, I was bemoaning the fact, oh, you know, I really wanted to teach until it suddenly struck me that I was in an ideal setting for me. So I think this is a time for both uh, academic advisors and students to be thinking of all alternates to the academy. Um, because I would hate to miss all I, these minds that I've met. These young, well-trained minds should not be lost. I mean, I've learned so much. That's another thing about being a librarian. They may learn from you, but you learn from them. And I've learned so much from them uh, that I don't want their knowledge lost. Anyway, I've gone on at length. I saw it. I'm sorry. No, no. Very interesting points, Dr. Abdoyan. I think uh, this would be, I, I think, I, I, not that I think, I know there's, I have a few more follow-ups in my mind, but I think for the moment, maybe, maybe this can be just an introduction and we can revisit some of these issues in a future If edition. anyone has the stomach for it, yes. <laughs> Obviously, an old retired man has nothing but time, and especially during <laughs> this well, if those interested in Armenian studies have displayed anything, it's it's resilience. So, exactly. <laughs> thank you very much again, Dr. Avdoyan. I appreciate it and um, and your patience. Thank you. With pleasure, everyone. Stay tuned to the next edition of the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. Have a great day.